welcome to season two, episode seven. Today is going to be wonderful. I am delighted that someone I hold in such high regard has agreed to speak with me. The front page of her website is what I really, truly need to meditate on to understand how to actually do it. it says show up, pay attention, cooperate with God and release the outcome. That last line, release the outcome. Whew, that is the hardest part. But our special guest today is a prolific author and speaker, and she leads retreats and consulting. Her vocational journey includes having served as the Dean of the Divinity School at Duke University and the McCullis Professor of Evangelism at Perkins School of Theology. She is a pioneer in new forms of theological education. In that capacity, Dr. Heath is a co-founder and president of Neighborhood Seminary. She's the author of 12 books. She's also an ordained elder in the church and served in pastoral ministry prior to her academic ministry at Spring Forest, an intentional Christian community and farm in rural North Carolina where she serves as abbess. Is that how you say it, abbess? Mm -hmm. Awesome, good. And to be honest, I'm a little intimidated because if I feel like for me, this is like interviewing the Queen of England. Um, <laughs> if, if she lived on a farm and was close friends with a lady in my small group, but I, I hate to discover what we'll talk about in what I hope is the first conversation of many. And so Dr. Elaine Heath, welcome. Thank you, Amy. It's nice to be here. Yes, I'm so, I'm so glad that you joined us today. And I'm interested in asking you about so many things because this is truly our, our first conversation. But I, I really wanna start with this because as I was reading about you, I became intrigued with your work co-founding Neighborhood Seminary, um, which is a nonprofit to provide theological, practical and spiritual formation for lay people to know how to help their neighborhoods flourish by participating with God and in, in what he, God is doing around them. And that's super relevant for me because I'm a layperson. I'm not ordained. And for those of you who don't know technically what the, the term layperson means, it just means we're, we're not clergy. <laughs> so we, uh, we, in the United Methodist Church, we don't get to do some things, although at my church, we take some liberties with that. So um, I do have its advantages, but I know it has its disadvantages too. But, but while you were dean at Duke, you were the professor of missional and pastoral theology. Um, so, so did teaching pastors to go into their own context help form this idea? Like how did, how did neighborhood seminary come along? Why, why the focus on lay people after teaching clergy for so long? Well, I've always been interested in equipping lay people. I came out of the Pentecostal church. I've been a United Methodist for more than 25 years now. And in my early faith formation, uh, I, I became a Christian when I was 16. I didn't grow up in the church. But in my early faith formation, uh, in, in those traditions, um, we believed that people are gifted by the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has spiritual gifts. And that the church's responsibility and pastor's responsibility is to equip people to use their gifts with wisdom and love. And in that theology... Uh, anyone can have a preaching gift, anyone can have a caregiving gift. And in that theology, uh, in, in its best forms, preaching, for example, is not the same thing as being the pastor. Pastoring is a yeah. shepherd teacher gift. So um, 
So what that meant was that there was robust participation of lay people in the life of the church. It wasn't hierarchical in such a strict sense as it is, for example, in the United Methodist Church um, and other denominations where there's a kind of a pyramid of power, you know, with the, the way things are structured. So, so that was in my background. And then when I joined the United Methodist Church, I was in seminary. When I started pastoring United Methodist churches, I realized there was a big difference between how lay people thought of themselves in the leadership structure of the church than what I was used to. And I, I felt sad about it because I encountered so many lay people who felt that uh, leadership had a lot to do with chairing committees and things like that, and had very little ex experience or knowledge about the gifts of the Holy Spirit teaching gifts, you know, leadership gifts, caregiving gifts, they didn't have that structure in their formation. So I began doing leadership development with lay people as soon as I started pastoring United Methodist churches. And the development of Neighborhood Seminary today is just the logical outcome of years and years of uh, focusing on um, uh, a, a type of ecclesiology, that means the study of the meaning of church and how church practices being the church. Um, one that has robust participation and leadership by lay people and where the pastors understand their role is primarily to equip the saints for ministry, to equip the saints for ministry. This is coming right out of Ephesians chapter four. When churches function that way, the church is alive. It's alive and mm. people are really thriving. Um, so that's where that came from. Do you have anything, any stories that come to mind of your work over the years <laughs> yeah. where you've you've seen a church transformed because the lay people oh this is this is my work too that it, that they move past the what a friend of mine calls concierge clergy um and <laughs> yeah yeah i mean my very first appointment was to a three-point charge in the united methodist world that means pastoring three little churches at the same time and so they were five <laughs> miles apart from each other this was in uh, Northeast Ohio. I was ordained in the East Ohio Conference. And so these are th three little churches, all rural. And um, the, the middle church, so I would preach the same sermon at all three churches on Sundays. But so the middle church, as I go down the road, that church was just remarkably open to, uh, to, to, to being uh, led towards spiritual formation. They were very open to being pastored in, in the way of uh, equipping the saints for ministry. So <laughs> it was a wonderful experience being there because, uh, you know, this was a little church in Rogers, Ohio. Rogers is famous for having the largest flea market in the state of Ohio. So this is Rogers, Ohio. <laughs> and um, the, the church had been there for many decades. And it was kind of like a lot of our rural churches, you know, in Texas and other states where you might have 50 people in worship on Sunday, if it's a good Sunday, or you might have 40 and, um, you know, the building needs some work and things like that. And uh, I just started leadership development uh, meetings with them once a month that I tagged on to the board meeting. Uh, we would have part of the time for a board meeting and part of the time for leadership development. And then I began, I just got to know everybody. It was a delight. These were great people. And one by one, they just started getting involved. I, I taught them about spiritual gifts. I had equipping experiences for their different gifts. I helped them 
have the books or the videos they needed or go to events where they could get some training. And I did, I did training myself for things so that by, you know, two years in, um, the men had formed a ministry to reach out to, there was a kind of a halfway, it was a group, group home for boys that had been in trouble with the law. And it was just outside of town. So the men formed a ministry with these boys. They had never done anything like that. None of the men had ever done anything like that. And it became a really important thing for those boys and for the men. And then there was a prayer group, an intercessory prayer group that started. And uh, there was a lot of energy around doing children's ministry in the summer in a new way and collaborating with other churches. Just a whole bunch of things happened. And the energy in that church, it really did turn around. And they won an award for um, stewardship. And the person mm. who was the lay leader at the time was named Lori Hawkins. Uh, she won a, a, for the whole conference, she won a stewardship award because of her leadership as a lay person. So mm. uh, yeah, when I think back about times when I was pastoring traditional churches, uh, the Rogers Church comes to mind as one that turned around. Wow, that's amazing. I, I love to hear stories like that because I, I'm, I'm interested in the revitalization and, and the 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 turnaround, really, the, the, I guess the redemption stories, really, when, mm -hmm. you know, the Holy Spirit is there, and, and people are open, and obviously, the Holy Spirit is everywhere, but um, it just seems to be more potent, if that makes sense, in, yeah, in some places. The, the skill set needed, the pastoral skill set needed to lead a church turnaround is similar to the skill set needed for planting a new faith community, but turning a church around is a lot harder than planning a new faith community because in an established church, you have gatekeepers, you have little yeah. traditions that people will, will put the church over things like what color the cloth is hanging from the cross. I mean, these sort of things that become very <laughs> important to people. When you start a brand new church, you have more elbow room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it has its own challenges, but, but in, in, Basically, I mean, the sort of skill set needed by a pastor who's going to lead a turnaround, um, there's sort of apostolic gifts, gifts for starting new things, mm. casting vision, mobilizing the people around a common vision, um, withstanding the, the, the slings and arrows, you know, kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you find there's, there's an ebb and flow of people that will... Um, I guess, you know, when someone comes in, they want to revitalize the church. Like you said, there's, there's usually a, um, some conflict that happens, but so do you find those people not, not to say it's an either, or that they either get on board or they, they move on. Um, we, we've just seen a lot of people co come and go and come back and then go again and come back. And so it's, it's just interesting in our church context, which is, unusual for a lot of different reasons, but um, now moving into a campus where we're going to be a part of, uh, separate from the church that owns the campus, but um, we'll be, we are part of the revitalization, re revitalization of that campus. So it, it's an interesting time in, in our church and that, something that's new for us. So I'm, I'm interested in learning more about uh, how we can navigate those uh, potentially uh, rough waters. <laughs> Sure. Where you where you've got you know the people who are just dug in and so how do you, um, yeah. you know how do you 
continue to make the invitation to those folks? Well, you can't let people who are dug in and fixated on some something that they say has to be there or they can't be there, you know, some, you, you can't let them chart the course for the church. Um, mm. You can't let them be the, you can't focus all your energy on the people who are dug in because if you do, mm. you'll never get anywhere because you're dug in with them. <laughs> That's not to say that you just, that doesn't mean you disrespect them or you, you know, you're mean to them or anything like that. I wrote about this whole process in my book, God Unbound, um, how, okay. uh, how, how to be with the church during times of major systems change. And um, mm -hmm. revitalization is a time of major systems change. Right now we're yeah. in a, a massive culture change that is changing all systems, all institutional systems. And so part of what you're experiencing in your church with this ebb and flow of people coming and going and coming back is a sort of instability that's in our church culture right now that's related to the broader sense of instability and where's the world going and we don't know what's happening. And um, it's not just the pandemic, it's also our political climate in this country and around the world and the sense of threat of climate change and war and all sorts of things that are going on. Um, but it used to be, I, I haven't checked recent statistics on this, but it used to be that any time a church turns around, most of the time when a church turns around from, from sort of dying, sort of plateaued and dying to being lively and going in good new directions, generally you would have a 30% attrition, at least 30% attrition of people who just can't get with mm -hmm. the, new, the new movement. They just can't make yeah. the change. So that's mm -hmm. one thing to know. And it's not because anyone's evil or bad or the pastor's not... Um, talented or anything like that. It has to do with group dynamics and how systems work. So mm. that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, I'm remembering something I read from George, George Barna many years ago, uh, probably 20 years mm. ago. And I think it might still be true that if you're, you have a, a church, let's say a smaller church, um, up to 100 people that are regularly, regularly participating, you, you need about six to eight people who are fully on board with the vision of new life, who fully get it, who have some, some credibility within the congregation, who are going to be um, working with the pastor or pastoral team to bring about change. It takes, it takes a team of at least six to eight people. It can't be accomplished by just the pastor. Um, even though oftentimes when a church is declining, they, uh, when they're telling the superintendent what kind of pastor they want next, they'll say, we want someone who'll bring in the young people and who'll do this and who'll do that. And they're really imagining the pastor's going to do all these things. When in fact, it's the responsibility of the church to do all these things. You mentioned the cultural climate and the political climate. It's for a multicultural church. It's, uh, it's like we're, we're in the thick of all of it. From your perspective, has there ever been a time like this for the church before? I, I can't feel like we're we're brand new in everything, but has has there ever been a, a time where the church has has faced so many different system changes, like you yes. mentioned? Yes, there have. There have been times like this, and then there's some unique things about this particular time. There's um, a book by Phyllis Tickle, the late Phyllis Tickle, called The Great Emergence. And I recommend that you read it. 
And she okay. makes the case in there that about every 500 years, give or take a few decades, uh, we don't know why this happens about every 500 years, but there are major systems change, uh, ex change changes going on in society that are massive that affect all of society um, and that the church is affected by those changes too. And so the church has to go through some major systems change. Um, so for example, 2000 years ago, uh, Jesus comes on the scene and then you've got Paul and the other apostles, but we'll just talk about Paul for a minute. So Paul has this dramatic experience of Christ on the Damascus road that begins this whole pivot in his life where here he is this well-educated cream of the crop, young Pharisee. He's the rising star. He's the hope of the future. And he suddenly is, uh, realizes that God loves all people, not just Jews, and that salvation is for everybody, not just Jews. And this is very, very disturbing and dramatic and a systems change, right? And so, right. Uh, so Paul, as you follow his journey, you, you're, you're also following how his mind becomes more and more open to what God is actually doing. I used that story in God Unbound. God Unbound is a, is a reading of the book of Galatians, which really tells Paul's story, what's happening. And that's a, that's a massive time of systems change that wasn't just about Paul and Jesus, but it was also about the fact that now the Romans had created this road and there was a Roman empire. So there were, there were, there was technology and transportation and communication and information capabilities that made it possible and kind of drove systems change on all these levels. Yeah. If yeah. you look back 500 years ago, a similar kind of thing happened when the printing press was invented. Now all of a sudden people could read things that didn't have access to printed material before. And, yeah. and there were also changes in uh, sort of European politics and changes in the economic system and the rise of merchants and all these kinds of things. So it affected the church and it's not surprising that the Protestant reformations happened then. So this all connected to the church. So that's what we're in one of those massive systems changes now that have been driven by changes in communication and information technology. Um, the new nations are actually transnational corporations and uh, right. a bunch of other things. So one of the things that Phyllis Tickle says in her book is that whenever we go through one of these 500 year deals, uh, what, what rises quickly to the top is questions of authority and the locus of authority changes. So mm. part of what's happening now is people are questioning authority structures that we inherited from the last 500 years. People are questioning right. and rejecting. And so as we look at leading systems change in our churches, we're gonna find, um, we're gonna find that playing out. So, yeah. Mm. And, and that, that's what I wrote God Unbound for, for churches who are, who are struggling with these things to read it and do a small group together so that we can listen to the Holy Spirit together and follow this new thing that God is doing that's really breathed mm. by the Holy Spirit. Right, right. Well, as, as you've been talking, I've, I've ordered it. <laughs> so I will be, <laughs> I've ordered it and uh, I will be getting my, my leadership team, our leadership team to, uh, to um, read that as well. I think going in to just the, the the local system change that we're yeah. about to be involved in in the midst of these 
you know, these massive national, well, national denominational, you yeah. know, I feel like every, <laughs> all the structures are being yep. uh, demoed to a certain extent and we're having to reform. Um, and, and personally, I'm raising three daughters, two of them are, are teenagers. <laughs> so we're in, we're in the midst of trying to teach them how to carry this faith forward, which they're kind of like, what? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, another great book that I, that I recommend to a lot of people who are wrestling with these issues is by Margaret Wheatley. It's called, Who Do We Choose to Be? And mm. Margaret Wheatley is a systems change and a social change expert. And um, <clears throat> she makes the case that cultures almost always collapse after about 200 years and then have to be born again. Mm. A new culture rises. And she says, we're in a time of major culture collapse here in the, in the Western world. And she documents yeah. what she's saying very well. And anyway, she makes the case that at times of culture collapse, what is needed is for people in sort of small localized groups, neighborhood sized groups, to form something she calls an island of sanity in the midst of chaos, because the yeah. changing systems create a sense of chaos and confusion where people are not sure where we're going. We can't go back to where we used to be. We don't know what's happening. It's a very, it's a very destabilizing experience for so many people. And you mm -hmm. can't legislate from on high programs and so on to make people you know, feel peaceful during these times. It, it has to come from the right. bottom up, from the edges, you know. And so, uh, so these islands of sanity are actually small localized groups of people who care about the future. Uh, for Christians, it would be caring about the future of the world, caring about the well-being of our neighbors, caring, caring about the future of the planet, <laughs> the future of God's church being lively and actually being a blessing in the world. And so these islands of sanity are people who gather regularly and it, they, this group, these groups become generative of new ideas, of um, places where gifts can emerge, vision can emerge. And this is actually how um, the goodness emerges as we're moving into a new reality that uh, these become generators of goodness that can help to resource mm. so that we're not just in this dark uh, sort of chaotic, um, uncertain space. Yeah. 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 Well, and that strikes me as very much when Jesus says, go out into all the world and make disciples that, that in, in his, you know, in, in the image of God and in, in the model of Christ, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> you know, that just seems to me as, as the church should be. Um, and, and I often think about how um, I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I read N.T. Wright's um, God in the Pandemic book. Uh, it was actually, I think, a short series of lectures he did that they turned into a book. And um, uh -huh. he talked about how um, the, the faith of the Christians in, in early, early church times, I think in the 200s or the 300s, there was a, a plague that happened and it was the Christians that stayed mm -hmm. in took care of the sick. Wow. And then that eventually became the idea for the, for hospitals. And I, I come back to that often, mm -hmm. um, to where that, you know, it, it, that idea is, is formative to me that mm -hmm. the church should be 
a hospital in every sense of the every sense of the word soul spirit body mind yeah. etc and so um oh man i'm so glad we're having this conversation that's just my mind's going in about four thousand different directions and i feel like i just want to calm down <laughs> calm down and let dr heath speak into this <laughs> well um, another source of inspiration for times like this that connects with what you're saying um there is a group a medieval group of women they started at just women and this would be in the in what's now called uh, the Netherlands, okay, kind of in the German lowlands, kind of that part of the world. And their name, mm -hmm. they were called the new, I mean, they were called the Beguines, B-E-G-U-I-N-E-S, the Beguines. And these were mm -hmm. lay people, of course, because they're women, but they weren't nuns. They weren't, they weren't authorized as nuns by the church. But these were just women who decided they're going to live together and be a blessing in their neighborhoods. And so they, they, they started living together and um, they would take care of the sick. They would help with education. They would make sure people had something to eat. They just really loved their neighbors. And this movement mm -hmm. spread. Um, they were unauthorized. They just went and did it. So in mm -hmm. Margaret Wheatley's language, they, they created these houses that were islands of sanity in a sea mm -hmm. of need. And that same spirit is enlivening people today who are really wanting to live intentionally in their neighborhoods in a way that helps their neighborhoods flourish. So whether they live in the same house or they are live in the same neighborhood, and this is part of how we get we need to get our minds around this in the church because we've been so indoctrinated to think of church as a building we go to on Sunday to participate in programs and put our check in the plate and then we go home and we've got the rest of our lives. Or maybe we sing in the choir yeah. or we teach a class, but we, we still have this sort of, our idea of church is not about typically how we live in our neighborhood through the week. That's mm. typically not how right. we think of church, but that is how we need to think of church as we move into the future, because that's what's being called for by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, and as someone who's taught on this, spoken on this, read so much written so much um i guess how, well two questions I'll, I'll tackle the past first how how did you how did you come to this work and maybe maybe we you know we we roll the scroll open even farther back than than your work in academia and the pastoral work but you, you mentioned your growing up you didn't grow up as a as a united methodist and no. so was there were there formative experiences that you had growing up that woke you up to the the realization that life and church needs to be done differently yes definitely so i grew up in a violent family with a, with poverty there was a lot of abuse mm. neglect um we were rootless we moved constantly i don't know how many places i lived and, and then all of us kids had to leave home while we were still kids. We got kicked out, not because we were bad, but because our parents had really serious problems. <clears throat> and um, my sister and I wrote a, a memoir together last year called Loving the Hell Out of Ourselves. It'll be available uh -huh. soon uh, that people can purchase it. It'll be on my website where we tell our story. But um, uh, you know, if you, if you know anything about the ACEs inventory, the ACEs study, Adverse yep. Childhood Experience Syndrome, uh, my sibling, yeah, my therapist and I are going through that right now. 
excellent. Yeah, we, yeah. we score nine out of 10 on the ACEs inventory. Oh my goodness. Wow. My sister and I that wrote the book together, she, she's a therapist. And so she and I do retreats and teach classes together sometimes. But anyway, um, that ACEs study was done in the late 90s. And now there's a lot of attention being paid to resilience studies. What helps people to be resilient? And my sister and I are sure that one of the reasons we have been resilient and we're able to heal from a lot of this uh, really horrific um, things that happened to us was because there were people in our lives along the way who loved us well, who uh, adults or, or people who were older, older than us, you know, older children who seemed like adults to us, who saw us, mm -hmm. respected us, who treated us appropriately, who were hospitable to us. And at times, those people were Christians. They weren't pastors most of the time. They were lay people. So I remember, for example, having a third grade teacher named Mrs. Lyons, who was a Christian. And I remember her. I felt seen and heard by her. And I felt loved by her and respected by her. And she treated me like she treated the other children, even though I know I needed a bath and I needed some different clothes and, you know, things that I couldn't mm -hmm. always have. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, she, she was so kind to me, and I, I wrote about her in that book. And I remember um, when I was eight years old, there was a neighbor down the road from us. We lived out in the country, and it was an older couple. I think they were probably in their 60s. And um, they, they were just so kind to my brother Jeff and me, and they said, uh, you can come and play in our yard. You can climb our tree and pick all the cherries you want. And they would fix sandwiches for us, and the, mm. the, the old man would... Um, let us watch while he took the honeycomb from the beehive and he gave us some honeycomb and they were just friendly. They would let us sit at their table and eat. So there were these experiences from Christians in their homes, in their own like work environment that so touched us and helped us to survive that mm -hmm. that has shaped how I think about the way that church needs to be that along with a thorough study of, reformations especially radicals of the reformation when i was in college and on into my graduate work i just felt called to those movements um, monastic movements and um, discipleship mm -hmm. movements through the history of the church those movements always start with lay people they always start in homes they always start with people saying we need to take the gospel a lot more seriously here this is not about sitting in a pew mm -hmm. facing forward this is about what we do with our neighbors that are suffering and it, it really has to do with um honesty about our own formation and doing what we need to do to be people who have integrity and who love well. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've learned some over the last few years about, you know, the movements of Great Awakening, and you talk about the, 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 the well-known people of, of uh, those movements, the, you know, the John Wesleys and the, the mm -hmm. George McDonald's and the, and the people that get a lot of press, um, but I remember hearing a speaker say once that it really is about travailing prayer mm -hmm. and how, how the Holy Spirit just burdens somebody, whether it's, you know, somebody well-known or, or probably not. I mean, I would say in John Wesley's case, I think that was probably his mother more than anybody. Mm, yeah. um, but, you know, Susanna Wesley, uh, my favorite, favorite line of hers is um, to paraphrase, God, let me occupy a little as space as possible as long as I can make a difference for you. So, um, 
you know, just just that idea that you you bring up that it's it's not the the people with the platform, right? It's 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 the people who are in the middle of this and and see the need, and that's a big part of the movement of our church as well. Is that we all have an ownership and a stake in this, and yeah, um, right, and yeah. And that, and I find that you find your own healing along the way in that as well. Has that been true for you? It's definitely been true for me um, and for my sister. Our our vocational journeys have been completely interwoven with our healing journeys, you know. And and that's mm. an that's a lifelong process that we are all in. So that's one of the things that's really important to do as uh, you know as your church continues to figure out how to be actively involved in neighborhood flourishing is for all of yeah. you to attend to your own journeys of healing, whatever, whatever trauma you might hold, whatever um, tough life experiences you might have had that have, uh, that have um, left residue. It's really important yeah. to intentionally heal from those things. But otherwise we wound yeah. people without even knowing it. Hurt people, hurt people. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so how did you find yourself, if you didn't, you didn't grow up in the church, you said you, you, um, I guess found faith at 16. Mm -hmm. Well, how did you find faith? <laughs> and then how did you know that you were called into pastoral than academic work? I found faith because some of those people along the way invited us to go to Sunday school. So off and on, we would go to Sunday school. Again, we moved a lot, so we weren't in any one place very long. But I was exposed off and on to Sunday school or to vacation Bible school. And, um, and I, by the time I was a young teenager, I had a real interest in spirituality and mysticism. I mean, when I was 15, I was reading about Buddhist mysticism and things like that was interesting to me. So I, I think I had a natural longing for it. Uh, and then when I was uh, 15, I, I used to roller skate all the time. That, those were my people, the skater crowd. And um, <laughs> there was a, a young man who came to the rink and invited me to go to church with him. And I, I, by then I was very cynical toward Christianity because I'd had some very destructive experiences of predatory Christian men. And I, mm. didn't, I, didn't really, I didn't really believe in God or the church anymore. I still was spiritually hungry. But I went with him because, uh, it, you know, he asked me to go to church with him. So I did. And it was yeah. a combination of being in that church where the people were very loving and being, um, I, I got a modern translation of the Bible and started reading it, started reading the gospels. And then I read a novel called The Robe, which was kind of a historical novel about the last weeks of Jesus' life and what, what kind of person mm -hmm. he was. And so it was a combination of all those things and my my hunger that I had a, a very profound experience of, of Christ coming to me, a light coming into my body that uh, mm. was the beginning of my Christian journey. When I was in my early 30s, I was in a Pentecostal church and I had been mm. mentored by a woman who was on staff at the church named Betty Jevons. She was truly, she was one of those mystics, you know, one of those amazing people we read about in books only fairly obscure and she mentored <laughs> me and just kind of invited me to go with her all the time when she would make pastoral care visits and when and then she asked me to lead this discipleship group she had been leading for women and so it was in the context of all of that I began having 
some call experiences that were very profound and protracted over a couple of weeks. And, uh, and so I went to her and was very nervous. My mouth was dry. I could hardly make eye contact because I was so nervous. And I still hadn't begun to realize the shame that I carried from abuse. And that, so I had a lot of healing ahead of me, but I was coming along, you know, and <clears throat> I told her I had a call experience that involved three things. One of them was to be ordained as a pastor. One of them was to, uh, I, I didn't use this language, but it was to academic ministry. It was to prepare pastors for their work. Mm. And then the mm -hmm. third piece had to do with some larger speaking platform thing. I didn't have language for some of this because it was beyond yeah. my experience. I'd never seen some of this. So I, but I, in the, in this third part of it, I saw myself uh, speaking to a, a large group of people that were half pastors and half something called lay leaders. I'd never heard of lay leaders in the United Methodist Church. I, I had mm. a vision actually that came true years and years later. I was speaking in this vision. I was in Hoover Auditorium at Lakeside, Ohio. And when I, the first time I ever walked into Hoover Auditorium, I recognized it because it was in that call vision. Wow. And in that call wow. vision, I was standing on the platform um, speaking to the people, there were, there were half clergy and half lay people. And I was telling them with this little small voice, I was <laughs> saying, the church is not a business. And by that, I meant it's not like General Motors or a bank or something. I said, the church is the body of Christ. It's alive. It's time to come back mm. to your first love. And I saw them mm. responding to that message. And so mm. I my call was to these three things and it was very very vivid and so uh, betty when i told her this she starts to laugh and she says and i was surprised because she was kind of a sober person but she laughed and laughed and sort of wiped away little tears <laughs> she said i saw this three years ago the day i met you but i couldn't tell you i needed to let you experience this for yourself and she said uh she said, always say yes to God and God will always make a way for you to answer your call, no matter what happens, no matter who tries to stop it. She said, God will take care of your children. God will take care of you, but always put God first and say yes to the call. So I promised her that I would. And, and then she says, you're not going to believe where God's going to take you. I've seen it. And I'm like leaning forward. And then she never told me what God had showed her. She just never said it. <laughs> She never did. <laughs> well, yes, how, how very prophetic. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that's, oh, how I, that's how I went into ministry. And I, but at that time, I barely had a high school diploma. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I got through high school because I left home when I was a junior in high school. And um, wow. so I had to go to school. I had to go to college. Then I had to go to seminary. And then I had to go do a PhD. And, you know, I had a lot of healing to do along the way. So that's what that's what happened. Uh, do you find that most of your work, your your written work that you've published, and and maybe even the the content that you teach, has come from this this life that that God has given you? That um, not only has He filled in the the academic pieces that you've needed, but I feel like, and I I don't know this for sure, but I just feel like there's such a um, a personal vulnerability that you communicate um, even through your academic content that's that draws people in that's very invitational so 
have you have you seen God weave those two together? Oh yeah, for sure they're inseparable, and um, I suppose that well I know there's nothing that I do in my intellectual work or my church work. There's nothing that I do in any of it that is not related to my experience of God. Mm. To me, it, it all belongs together. There's nothing that's just objective that's out there that, that doesn't connect to my life and to life in general. Um, mm. And I think John Wesley was like that because John Wesley taught that the means of grace, you know, the way these, there were five instituted means of grace, you know, they're for all time and all people and all places. And for him, none of those means of grace were uh, theoretical. They were not um, abstract thoughts or concepts. For him, they all needed to contribute to greater love of God and neighbor, to actual holiness of life in how we live our lives. And if they didn't have that personal connection and that personal transforming um, power, they were not only a waste of time, they were a travesty. And so I, yeah. I agree with that. I agree with John Wesley about all of that. And, uh, and I suppose too, that this is what it means to be an evangelist, that um, mm. what I teach and share has transformed me. And I just, I just mm. want people to be transformed. I want people to have the joy of healing. I want people to have freedom to be who they are. I want people to know they're not, they don't have to stay stuck, that they don't have to be doomed. Yeah. 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 Wow. And so, so I guess let's get to the, the kind of the middle part. How did you find yourself in, in the academic work and, um, and, and then how did you get out of it? <laughs> Cause I, I know that you did that as well. Or, or why did you get out of it? Not how, but why? <laughs> why did you get out of academic? I still do academic work actually. I still write yeah. books. Yeah. I have a book coming out that I co-authored with another person, Trauma-Informed Evangelism. That's coming out from a good academic press, Erdman's. It'll be oh, out great. in uh, early 2023. So I still write. I still research. Yeah. Um, and I still teach. I just uh, don't teach for just one institution full-time. I teach for different things in different situations. Yeah. Um, but so I went, into, I went into traditional academia because God called me into it. And um, I, I think I can say I've been faithful. I've been faithful to do my academic work, my work as a scholar and as a teacher, uh, being faithful to my own journey, the things that we just talked about, you know, that, so that mm -hmm. there's integrity there and there's passion. Um, I've also felt for years and years like we need to completely uh, overall and start over again with how we do academia. <laughs> because for so many people, academia excludes a lot of people, but also there are so many things about traditional academia that foster shame and exclusion um, that privilege, uh, well, in Western academia for sure, privilege white male perspectives, Eurocentric perspectives, as if other mm -hmm. perspectives didn't count. And so there are a lot of things that need to be changed and how we, and even pedagogy, um, mm -hmm. you know, for adults, adult learners need a range of teaching methodologies and learning methodologies, learning modalities 
Um, and yet we have privileged talking heads that just drone on and on. <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. so <laughs> the part of my um, uh, modus operandi as a professor, I use very uh, diverse teaching methodologies. I tried to use methodologies that help people with all the different learning styles. So, mm -hmm. um, and even now when I teach online, I use a lot of different teaching methodologies um, because that way people can learn. And that's what yeah. you want people to do, right? Um, yeah. uh, I also know from reading Parker Palmer and doing work in educational philosophy that people can't learn when they're terrified. I know I've been doing work in trauma theory for some time now uh, and how it affects our ability to show up in the world. And um, mm. so, so I've wanted to create learning experiences and learning communities where people can show up as themselves. They don't need to be terrified. They belong. They have freedom to be creative, to try things, to fail and to learn from failure without shame attached to it. And so that's kind of been the vision I've had for uh, teaching and for creating learning communities. Um, if you'd like to know about a secular person who does some really interesting work here, Otto Scharmer at MIT has created something called Theory U, and he's got a whole constellation of things, Theory U, but about learning from the future as it emerges. And he picks up some of these contemplative ideas and these ideas of uh, mm. creating communities where it's safe to learn. Um, mm. So that, th those are some elements to what I've been doing. Okay. Okay, so how is that translated with your work now? I wanna talk about Spring Forest and, mm -hmm. um, and, and all that you do there. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what, what's it, what's a day in, day in the life like, or a week in the life like <laughs> for <Okay>. you? <laughs> well, let me, let me preface this by saying spring forest is the, uh, the manifestation. That's a popular word these days, manifesting. So it's a yes. manifestation yeah. of, uh, the teaching and, uh, scholarship and exper experiments that I've been involved with for 20 years. So this is like the final, mm. like, like a full manifestation, um, because mm. part of, uh, the difference that I wanted to make in teaching and pedagogy and in, in how we learn was to create uh, real life learning contexts where students have to wrestle with real life things along with mm -hmm. what they study in theory in the classroom and in their books. So in Texas, before we moved here, I started a foundation with a friend called Missional Wisdom Foundation, where we had a whole network of new monastic houses. We started some social enterprise mm. businesses and, um, and some other things so that students could um, learn about liberation theology in the classroom, but then they had to do liberation theology in the neighborhood while they dealt with slum landlords and you know, unscrupulous car wow. salespeople and you know, these sort of systems things that affect poor people. So, yeah. wow. so all of that to say what we're doing here at Spring Forest um, I retired from, from Duke in 2019, and I retired from the UMC in 2020 so that I could focus on getting neighborhood seminary established, and so I could focus with my friends on getting Spring Forest deeply rooted. So mm -hmm. we live here in, um, in this wonderful space and have resources here so that people can come for retreats, classes can come here, um, 
you know, right now, mostly it's day retreats. We do have a little room for overnight guests and we have people come for sabbaticals and things. But people come here to have their imaginations sparked about a different way of being mm -hmm. church in the world, not just in a rural context, but in any context. And mm -hmm. people come to see, okay, what does it look like when church is not about pews facing forward, worship services, that's not the center of, that's not the definition of church. What does it look like when um, a church lead team is everybody in the church that's leading anything and then everybody else is just, um, everybody else is part of the church, but, but the lead team is actually leading ministries. You know, and the, what does it look like when the church has clergy who earn their living mostly from doing other work in the world and not from being a pastor? What is it like when you have a lead team that's mostly lay people and we all earn our living doing other things so that we bring down the cost of being the church in the world? What does it look like when a church doesn't have a church building but actually has a farm? Yeah. Hmm. These kinds of questions. It helps to spark imagination and great conversations. So um, I'm, I'm hoping now in the, after July 1st, we'll have uh, more overnight space available on the farm. And I've actually reached out to a seminary that I've done some uh, adjunct teaching for to see if their doctor of ministry program, if, if some of those classes could come here, I teach in their doctor of ministry program sometimes, could we have the classes here instead of somewhere else so that they would have a full immersion in missional new monastic life and we could do our mm. theoretical work and we could do some hands-on work on the farm together and we can pray together morning and evening and we can cook together. So they have an experience of building formational community. So, so mm. uh, when you have an experience like that, it changes your life. You don't forget it. Yeah. It's deeply impactful. Yeah. So that's what I'm up to. Yeah, well, um, I need to sign up. <laughs> that's what I need to do right now i've already ordered three books and and need another one but um I, I, I wanted to ask you too but what's what's sitting with me is in zach and i's conversation the, the episode that we just recorded um pre, prior to this one where i i talked with zach we we talked about the book by octavia butler the parable of the sower mm -hmm. and um and how that was one woman's journey to essentially create a new monastic community really is is what it was about not a not a christian religion but um uh, it, it's just fascinating to me about how this idea keeps coming up this this idea that there's there's a reformation and that's really what this whole season of the podcast about is reimagining yes. how how what we've always defined or thought of as church um could potentially look like could potentially be like mm -hmm. um which which is why i'm 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 so excited to be talking with you and and i i say this every episode i want to have another conversation <laughs> every time i'm like this is one the one conversation is not enough but um I, you know what i what i want to ask you too is as as we kind of wrap clo close our our hopefully first but not last conversation is um, in these these call the the call experience that you mentioned and how God has has brought that experience about in in so many different ways how have you 
how have you known which direction to go in? How have you known the doors to walk through? Or is that something that you look back in hindsight and realize, oh, this is how God got me here? Um, well, yeah, there's a way in which you look back and you say, oh, surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days. <laughs> you know, there's a yeah. way that you can look back and see things after they've happened. But there's also, I've learned um, spiritual discernment practices years and years ago and have developed some others over time, you know, in community with people. And those practices are time tested. And so, for example, mm. the prayer of examine, uh, E-X-A-M-E-N. There's a book by mm. Matthew Dennis and Sheila Lynn called Good, called um, Sleeping with Bread. That uh, mm. for modern people, it's different ways to pray the prayer of examine for discernment so that you can, mm. you can see what's happening in your life and you can decide, you know, how, which path to take. So I've used prayer of examine many, many times. We use, we use prayers like that. We use show up, pay attention, cooperate, and release the outcome as our primary yeah. way of, of uh, discernment here in our community. And I do that for my own life. So I try to pay attention to who's coming toward me, what's coming toward me, um, what's coming toward us. Where is the energy rising for us? Where is it being drained? And... Mm -hmm. Um, and then by noticing that and in a group uh, naming what's happening, then the pattern begins to show us which way to go. Now, yeah. sometimes, sometimes um, it's not clear, it's kind of opaque. And then the Quaker wisdom comes forward. There's a saying among the Quakers that way opens and way closes, and that we could trust mm. God when way closes that that's also God showing us, don't go this way, go this way. You see that in, mm -hmm. in the New Testament when the apostles are, the way is blocked by the Holy Spirit. So, right. so those are some ways um, that we practice discernment. There's also um, in the Quaker tradition, something called a clearness committee, clearness committee. Parker Palmer writes about it. Others have written about it where you need, when you're facing a difficult choice between, let's say, two good options of your career mm. or something else, <coughs> and you, you just really can't decide, you can't tell which one because they're both good. And so um, a clearness committee would be a small group of friends who've been taught to ask good, good, good open-ended questions where they're not leading questions, but they're good open-ended questions and they can help you get down to the root of uh, why you lean in this direction or you lean in that direction. And then that can also be really, really helpful in making a decision. Yeah. Wow. For, for me. Okay. That makes five. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Just, Sorry. just one last thing for me along the way, as I had a lot of healing to do, you know, after I had my call experiences, um, the call experiences were so vivid in my mind. I'm, even now they're just sort of laser sharpness to these call experiences mm. that I came to crossroads at times and I had to decide if I'm going to follow that call or I'm going to roll over and give up and God <laughs> helped me to keep following the call yeah. mm. wow wow well thank you so much for sharing all of this I I've now got five books on the way <laughs> because I I needed my husband is just like, stop, please stop ordering books. Just, <laughs> I'm trying to read them all, but, um, 
uh thank you just so much this is i feel like this is just the toe in the water of wisdom that that you've learned and and experienced with god and i i love talking with people like that because it it in a in a strange way it reminds me that god is real that it's i i spend i spend a whole lot of time up here yeah um and i'm sure it, well and that's why i asked you too about how you, how you how you balance it you balance the the two so um i i, I will need some more wisdom in that <laughs> well thank you and and at neighborhood seminary um one of the central things that we teach people is practices of discernment those things i just named mm. the discernment yes. spiritual formation is central to the curriculum to all of the curriculum in neighborhood seminary and it's really intended mm. to help people uh, know how to hear what the spirit is saying to the church and how the Holy Spirit is guiding them as individuals. So um, yeah. yay for a neighborhood seminary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, where can people find out more about neighborhood seminary? Uh, www.neighborhoodseminary.org. Ah, perfect. Yeah, perfect. And then what about um, Spring Forest? Where can people look up how to get in touch with what's happening there? Uh, springforest.org. And we're in the process of really updating our website. So many exciting new things are happening that are not on the website. So we're, we have a webmaster that's working with us. I have a meeting with her after this afternoon, by the way. But, so that's okay. how you can find out. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, well, thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back again. And I, I'm, I'm coming to North Carolina. That's just yeah. it. That's you need to it. come and see the sheep and goats and pick some greens. Yes. Yes. Yeah. My, my youngest and I've talked about it and she asked me the other day, she said, when are we going to that, that farm <laughs> that you talked about? So she's going to keep, hold me accountable to it. Great. Well, we'll so. look forward to hosting you. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Applying Jesus is hosted and produced by Amy Vogel, director of spiritual growth for Upper Room Heights. We record at Chapelwood United Methodist Church Digital Studio in Houston, Texas. We hope something you heard today has deepened your faith, opened your eyes, and led you to not only knowing God in a more expansive way, but shift how you connect, especially with those who are easy to overlook. To find out more about Amy and our church community, go to www.urheights.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember, we love you and there's nothing you can do about it.